0: Welcome to Rejuvenaging with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive health psychologist, also keynote and TEDx speaker and author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Rejuvenaging: the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is The Mental Health Gym. It's your source of information regarding all things related to wellness, positive psychology, my own spin on it that I call goal-achieving psychology, rejuvenating, and lots of other hopefully helpful things. It's also the place where you can recommend upcoming guests for this podcast. As listeners of the podcast know, we have developed a format that involves getting guests on the show who lead their own lives with enthusiasm and have different ways of helping us to do the same thing. Hopefully, the podcast is not only just something that you listen to, but also will have an impact on the way that you lead your life in the most enthusiastic and positive way that you can. We have a very special guest today who's got a really kind of unique spin on how we can become the best versions of ourselves. I don't think we've had anybody on this topic yet, at least not specifically, but Dr. Timothy Yen is a psychologist who earned his doctorate in clinical psychology at Azusa Pacific University. He practices in the East Bay Area of Northern California And he's also led conferences and retreats around the globe. Between his years in private practice and another eight years as a mental health staff sergeant in the U.S. Army, he's empowered hundreds of individuals, families, organizations, and teams to develop authentic relationships and to grow into their best selves think you can see why we wanted him. So Dr. Young currently resides in Northern California with his wife and son, and he has a newly published book that we are going to explore called Choose Better, the Optional Decision-Making Framework. So without further ado, Tim, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It's a real thrill to have you with us.
1: Thank you so much, Ron, for having me.
0: Well, let's uh, let's learn a little bit about this whole topic, because I kind of shared with you before that long before you and most of the listeners were born, I actually was interested in choices that people make, and my dissertation was actually on decision-making among married couples. And uh, so while I've stayed with that as, as an interest, I've kind of gone into different areas and also notice that despite my interest in it, I don't always make great decisions. So I want to really learn about it. And I'm just wondering from from a practical standpoint, why do people, I mean, this may seem like a dumb question, but, you know, we learn lots of things in school. Why do people make so many wrong decisions? Why do they make choices that they regret afterwards?
1: It's a great question that I'm sure many people who have made poor decisions wonder themselves because I want to believe your listeners and and people in general are fairly smart people. And yet we don't always arrive at the best decisions. So why is that? And I think there's so many reasons that we probably don't have time to go over. But one of the big ones would probably be the fact that we are opportunistic creatures and we want to make the best choice. But the thing that we struggle with is figuring out how do we arrive at that conclusion because we have so much knowledge. I mean, at our fingertips, now that things are so digital, the internet is easily accessible. We just have this feeling that maybe we're missing something. And therefore, we are trigger shy to to really follow through with the decision. And the fear of failure and what that means about us as a person. That usually keeps people from really making the best decisions and, and kind of thinking things through, which is its own skill set that hopefully we will be able to go over today.
0: Okay. Well, it sounds like very obviously, if you become kind of immobilized by overthinking, you may actually not make a choice. It seems like there's the opposite problem too. I know just in terms of my own life, a lot of poor decisions financially and otherwise that I've made have been kind of from this fear of missing out that if I don't do this now if I don't invest here now if I don't sign up for this I may not have another chance uh you know I, I'm wondering do you see that also
1: yes in fact marketing and commercials they have optimized on that very part of our psychology which is like you said, FOMO, I think, is the the acronym, right? The fear of missing out. They tap into that part of us that wants to uh, not be left behind, that that don't, doesn't want to miss out on an opportunity. And so it taps into this urgency that we need to decide and we need to decide now. When, in fact, we haven't taken the proper time to think through, is this the best decision for me?
0: And in your work, have you seen where, I mean, people make major decisions the wrong way and marriage or moving to a different city to to pursue their their hopes and dreams. uh, I I assume we're not just talking about small decisions that people can make wrong. All of the above.
1: And, And to be fair for all of our listeners, sometimes you do think things through but you're just missing some really important data points that were not available to you at the time. So not all poor decisions are a result of a lack of diligence per se. Sometimes we just don't know because we just didn't have that piece of information at that time.
0: Okay. So let's talk about why I got you on here, which is uh, we know that people make wrong decisions. We know that People have some difficulty with their choices. Tell us a little bit about the framework that you've developed, because presumably we don't have to accept the fact that that wrong choices, it has to be a way of life.
1: That's right. In fact, I hope no one is defined by making wrong choices. And and I emphasize it time and time again, uh, just like shooting a basketball or playing the piano. It's a skill. Decision-making is a skill. If you're willing to put a little bit of time in practicing it, everyone can improve in this area, which I believe is a game changer because when you make authentic value-centered decisions, you can't help but live a great life. But if you continue to make the wrong ones, then you're going to reap the consequences of that as well. So everyone can improve. That's always my really big take-home message is Everyone can improve in this skill we call decision-making. Uh, about the framework, the framework is really something that I created through, you know, hundreds of hours, maybe thousands of hours working with clients who come into my office because of that reason. They don't like where they're at in their life. And as I extrapolated some of the general themes, I came up with this thing called the framework, which is these kind of four crucial sectors or or, or checkpoints that I hope everyone considers before they make any sort of important decision. And I'll go through it really quickly. And Ron, if you want to have me elaborate more on any particular checkpoint, I'm more than happy to do that. But I'll give a really quick, broad overview for your listeners. There's four parts with kind of an invisible fifth one, but there's what I call the four pillars or four parts to the framework. Pillar number one is what is my emotion or emotions trying to tell me. So the first pillar is about your feelings. If it's important, you're going to feel a certain way about it. And I encourage and challenge people to identify what these feelings are in relationship to this situation. And what is the the function or the why behind that feeling? And that's a very, very important data point or data points to consider. Number two, or pillar number two, is values of self. So what are the things that matter most to you? Uh, What's meaningful to you about this decision? So if your children's education is really important and you're deciding where to move, then that would rank higher right, in terms of location of your house. It's just random different things. We have to realize that there's things that are really important to us. And when those values are not at the forefront of our decision, we're going to feel like we missed something and we're not going to feel great about that decision. Part number three is is values of others. So we do live in a society full of people and oftentimes our decisions impact other people. So we want to honor the people that we care about. We want to honor those who are involved and ask those questions and discover what's important to them as well. Because the more our decisions can be a win-win type of setup, the greater the world's going to be. And then the last but not least is what we call reality factors, which is there are certain things in our lives that are independent of what we think and feel. They are, it is what it is. The house at this time is colored red. Well, that's, that is what it is. There's racism that exists in my neighborhood. That's just a reality, right? So there's certain things that we want to consider because there are consequences Based on what we decide when we interface with some of these reality factors, and, and through that process, my hope is some options or viable choices will start surfacing as you go through each of these checkpoints. And when you consider all of those data points, I believe people are able to make the most informed decision. It doesn't mean it's going to be a home run. It's going to be flawless. I'm not making those kind of promises with my book that if you follow this, you'll live a life without regret. Well, I take that back. You may not live a life with regret because you did the due diligence of being thorough about your decision-making. So you won't regret that piece of it. The outcomes, again, we can't control everything about what actually happens. But I think people will feel good and confident about where they arrive with their decision-making. And then the last two little points, I guess, is talking about courage, which is just because you know better doesn't mean you always do better. So there's some processes in terms of working up the courage to actually follow through with whatever decision you arrive at. And then the last piece is what I started with, which is about regrets. Sometimes we have a poor track record. How do we overcome some of those mental barriers and keep trying at making great decisions.
0: Well, this is fabulous because I, I mean, people don't tend to operate from a framework and the fact that this can be boiled down. And I'm wondering, can can people kind of mess up at any one of these four points uh, or are there some something that once you're on a roll, you're going to get it done?
1: My hope is that the more you do it, the better you're going to get just like shooting a basketball. Once you kind of figure out the kinks, you figure out what muscles you should be using when you extend your arm. There is a trial and error piece to this equation and really making the framework your own. People do get better and it's not as exhausting I suppose the more you do it just like any sort of skill. There there is a muscle like a it's almost like a brain muscle in decision making where it does get smoother, it gets easier over time. In fact, if you were to ask me, do I go through each part of these pillars when I make decisions? The answer is yes and no. I use it to make decisions, but I don't necessarily go through each of these questions in its proper order because it's already a part of who I am. I already make decisions based on these four factors. And so I want to introduce that to people who sometimes feel like they're in the fog or they feel stuck and they don't know where to start. My encouragement is Start with the framework. You have a starting point and you have an ending point.
0: Is there a difference between, I mean, some people are much more in touch with their emotions than others. Some people tend to be distant from their emotions. Is if you're going to employ emotions, is there an ideal place to start from, whether it be more dispassionate or to really try and be in touch with your feelings or what?
1: Yes. Feelings is, or at least emotional intelligence and understanding of your feelings is probably also a skill. Yes, some people intuitively are better than that than other people. A great place to start would probably be feelings of discontentment. And my guess is that's not a very hard feeling to tap into because people are really good at complaining, and, and finding problems. we I think as a society as a whole, our brain has been wired to look for problems. So that is a great place to start. If there's a some sort of feeling of discontent anywhere,
0: start exploring that. Okay, terrific advice. Thank you for that. As I am listening to this, I think in terms of, Jesus, uh, probably too late for me to explain this to, to my sons who aren't May not sit down with it all, but my my grandchildren are in their early teens. I imagine if I wanted to help them in this regard or or if parents of young kids want to implement this, is there a kind of a systematic way of doing it as opposed to say you know taking out a whiteboard and going through the four points or what
1: yes. With children, and I do have a background in child psychology. So I do see children, teens in my practice on a fairly regular basis. But I can definitely speak into that a little bit more. Modeling. How we model this skill as an adult will have great implications for your children. And the way that you do it with kids is probably not quite as rigid as the way my book is framed, right? There's probably a more child-friendly version of the framework. Maybe that is my second book, a child's children's edition. But but one way to, to really tap into it with our kids is increasing their emotional intelligence by labeling what is going on in front of you. So you can imagine younger grade-age kids, teenagers, when there is some sort of dispute or a problem, you can see it. You can see it in their behaviors. You can see it in their face. There's something that's happening. But instead of just ignoring it or getting angry at the fact that your teenager is giving you attitude, it's putting it in the framework of emotions and and kind of calling forth what you're seeing. Like, hey, I, I noticed that you got you shut down when I started talking about grades. I'm wondering what that's about, right? It's asking those questions, and and for for younger kids, they may not even be aware they're feeling whatever they're feeling. And so being able to label it and say things like, "Hmm, it seems like you're upset right now when you're not able to watch two more hours of television as you thought you were," you know, able to, like saying those kind of things helps the child. Put those pieces together like, oh, this feeling that I'm having. Oh, mom keeps using the word upset or keeps using the word angry. Okay, I know what mom's talking about when I feel this way. So that's how we build emotional language for our children. And then we take it a deep a step further, which is, well, anger, as I outlined in my book, this is the work from Dr. Paul Ekman. All the emotions have some sort of universal function as to why evolutionarily we kept these emotions around is because it does serve some sort of survival purpose. So anger, for example, is about injustice, right? It's about unfairness. And so we get to ask our children that deeper question, like, hey, you're really angry that you're unable to watch television for two hours. It probably seems really unfair, right? So you're starting to tap into, okay, this is why this emotion exists. And that's already helping your children with that framework of decision-making. Because now we're having a conversation about unfairness and the real reason why they feel this way. Okay, now we can start having conversations about values and and talking about what's important to the child, which is unlimited television, what's important to you as as a parent, sleep and nutrition, (laughs) or whatever it is you want for your child, and be able to communicate those things to your kids. And in honor, like, hey, I totally get that you want to watch TV for two more hours. That sounds like a whole lot of fun. You value that. Mommy or daddy, on the other hand, we value growth, health, and and it's important for you to sleep, whatever the case may be. And so it's, it's having a language around why parents are making these kind of decisions on behalf of their children. It's not just assuming the children know. They don't like, why would they know these things unless someone is able to verbalize it to them? So these are just little nuggets of ways that we can implement the framework with our children. Yeah, so
0: that's great. It's not just about decision making, but it, it really is uh, a way to kind of generally improve the the growth and the mental health of, of children uh, by utilizing this this model as a basis. Right. That's, that's terrific. I'll have to try it and, and see how it works with grandchildren. But that brings me to the other end of the age spectrum. A number of my peers, I, I'd really try to discourage this, but complaining about and regrets is unfortunately kind of a, a generational thing with, with older adults. Uh, having regrets over the job that they took, uh, or the career that they chose, or the spouse that they chose, or the investment that they made, or the one that they didn't make, or many of them, uh, aside from just the mental health issues of living in the past, uh, which is not a separate problem, but uh, but brings in some other issues. But I'm just wondering, at whatever age, if somebody is more stuck with regrets about a decision that they made that, that they can't remake at this point. Um, what do you have to say to them?
1: The regrets really, I mean, feeling regretful is an emotion that's, that's tapping into some sort of need. And, and I think you you hit it Ron, which is there is a strong part of an individual who feels regretful that they want to go back in the past and undo something. Undo a decision or, or do a decision that they did not do. And my my first recommendation is really honoring and validating that thought. Because sometimes people bypass the validation piece. And that's why the regret keeps coming up. It's like there's like this war in their minds where there's like a logic part of their brain. That's like, oh, you should get over it, man. Like it's already over. Why do you keep thinking about it? My guess is the reason why it's still stuck in there is because there hasn't been a proper grieving in a proper honoring of this decision that has led to some sort of regret. So that's probably the first step in saying, yeah, you know, if I knew better, I probably wouldn't have invested my life saving into this one stock or whatever, or whatever it was that that was happening. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay to acknowledge it. I think it's healthy from that point emotionally, people are able to, or are more able to move forward and talk about redemption. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but redemption meaning, okay, is there some sort of wisdom that I can glean from what has happened in the past? Because if there's wisdom that you can acquire from the past, then it wasn't completely a mistake that there's something valuable that you got from it. And the million-dollar question then comes, how do I use the wisdom of the past in my present and my future? And when you're able to use that wisdom, then regrets hold a totally different kind of feeling because you kind of leveled up as an individual. I'll give you an example for myself. So my wife and I, we went to Mexico for vacation. This was probably several years ago back in 2017, I believe. And the, the resorts are always trying to sell you these timeshare kind of things. And they kind of sweeten the deal, do this and that. Well, regretfully, I got suckered into one of those timeshare presentations. And it all kind of sounded great in the moment. And then dread and regret kind of sank in, you know, the, the night before or the night after. But then I still ended up going through with it. And yeah, if I, if I look back, I would not have gone through with any of it, but the wisdom that I gleaned from that 2017 experience is I became a lot wiser in how I make purchasing decisions because I am naturally too trusting, too gullible, probably for my own good. And so my wife and I both learned that, Hey, when we're about to buy a new car, for example, we're not just going to go with the first deal that sounds really good. We're actually going to walk away, wait an hour, kind of hash it out, and then go back to the dealership, which is precisely what we did with our next car purchase. And we felt so much better about that. But that strategy would not have come up unless we experienced the regretful purchase of the timeshare back in 2017. So that's just an example of How we can redeem our past for a better
0: future. It's a great story, and uh, makes me feel a little better about my some of my financial uh, misdeeds because that's one thing I haven't done. Uh, So good for you, Ron. Good to know that that I haven't made every possible mistake that can be made. But but I think as a true psychologist, it seems like we can thus use every experience as a learning experience and uh, recognize we're all really works in progress and i think if we're not stuck I, i think that's the biggest problem a lot of times with people who get to be in the senior years is they get stuck in the regret as opposed to using it and building upon it so that's really wonderful advice so we've been talking about your ideas and it's been very educational very helpful and also entertaining but i uh again i can't as a psychologist i can't let you off the hook without learning a little bit about you and your journey how did you happen to get into this this line of work and and how did you happen to particularly develop these these plans on on making choices and decisions and so on so
1: my my journey as a psychologist or becoming a psychologist is is fairly unique and in that i never Aim to be a psychologist. Uh, I kind of stumbled upon it in a way. I I wanted to be a journalist uh, right out of high school, did this little radio show and was really enamored about broadcast journalism. But then I didn't want to pay for my own college tuition. So signing up for the US Army kind of made sense at 17 and a half, give away eight years of your life to get your college paid for. Like Somehow that made sense to me. So I enlisted and realized during the the medical examination process that I was severely colorblind. So you need color vision to be a journalist, apparently. So that career path got halted in its tracks. And mental health was one of the few options left over for a colorblind person like myself. So that's kind of what happened is I kind of stumbled into it and I fell in love with it. I I love the work. I I love hearing people's stories. I love being part of the transformation process of changing or helping people guide themselves into a better trajectory of their lives. So I find the work very meaningful. So I did go back to school to be as equipped as I can be to help as many people
0: as I can. Terrific story. How did you happen to, to focus on decision making, choosing, stuff like that?
1: So the, another part of my passion, besides the clinical work, is doing more of the executive coaching, leadership kind of emphasis. And I had dinner with a friend of mine who is the CEO of a a tech company in Taiwan. And I asked her that question: What is something that I can contribute to your company that would really bring value to your your employees, to your to your leadership? And she's the one that suggested critical thinking. That was her words. Critical thinking. How can I help my my managers, my my supervisees, the employees think more on the same page, be able to negotiate differences, arrive at conclusions faster? If you can help my people think better, then that would be of tremendous value to my company. So it, it started with that dinner conversation. And so I was brainstorming, how can I create material to help people think better and then I realized I don't think this is a tech company issue. I think this is a human race issue. I think everyone can benefit from decision making or better decision making. And so I started doing the research, putting my experiences and some evidence-based work together and wrote choose better.
0: Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. I also think I uh I have a topic for the next time we have you on. I, When I was doing more neuropsych work and I would identify kind of cognitive deficits and encourage people to get retraining, I would talk about the fact that, you know, it's something about the way that they see the words and so on. And without any evidence at all, I said, like, for example, if somebody's colorblind, uh, they have to learn to concentrate on things like intensity or things of this nature that they have to make it work in a world where, where it's not built for that. So I will one day be interested in finding out how a colorblind person functions at a high level uh, and builds around that stuff. Uh, but Sounds that's good. for another time. For today, though, I would like you to, uh, we've talked about your book. I don't think uh We've talked about how you get it and all that kind of stuff. So uh, let's see if we can sell a few books for you and uh, let people know how they can uh, get this very, very useful book that has a strategy that I don't think anybody has ever come up with around the difficult problem of decision-making.
1: Absolutely. So there's a link on my website, www.timyen.com, P-I-M as in Mike, Y-E-N as in Nancy.com. And there's a link right in the front page where you can click that the main book distributor that my book is on is amazon.com. So if you type in choose better, you should be able to find where you can purchase it.
0: Okay, great. And the title again is choose better. And we'll have all this uh, in the show notes too. So if somebody's driving, they don't have to stop and you know, mark it down. Also, just you, you kind of started to tell us your website is timyan.com. And I believe you're also on social media and all that. How How do people find you if they choose to follow you on social media and also uh, assuming there are some listeners in the East Bay area, which we frequently have, if somebody wants to work with you more directly. How do how do they find you?
1: Sure. So you can definitely send me a contact through uh, my website. Like I said, timian.com and has all the social media links on the bottom. So I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, all those different things. So there's different channels in which you can follow my work. And I do executive coaching as well as counseling. So, counseling for sure would have to be within California. I do a lot of remote telehealth type work. Send me a contact and we can see if we're a good fit. If you're out of state, then it has to be strictly coaching related work. And I can help make that distinction uh, with the individual if they're interested in doing that kind of work in improving their decision making. So, those are a few ways that they can get a hold of me.
0: Good. And although we've been concentrating on a certain area, I think if you go to Tim's website, you're going to see there's lots of different information about different aspects of psychology and coaching and uh, things, not just the decision making process, which is highly important, but uh, is not the only thing he does. So as usual, we run out of time before we run out of questions. So it's my job to be the traffic cop in the situation and uh, do a couple of things. One is to kind of close out the podcast, but not before thanking you immensely, Tim, for being here and for sharing your knowledge about decision making, choosing, and lots of other things that are related to to helping people function enthusiastically, positively, and becoming the best version of themselves. It's been a real delight speaking with you. Uh, I hope you will come back in the future, and I really want to express the appreciation from all of my listeners for another podcast. Really well done and really informative, and we're grateful for it. Thank Thank
1: you so much, Ron, for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: And this has been Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser, with our guest, Dr. Timothy Yen, who has enlightened us in another way to help us lead our lives enthusiastically, positively, in a most mentally healthy fashion. Keep in mind, again, our website is thementalhealthgym.com. Hope you'll visit frequently. And I hope that you all will subscribe, download, review, rate the podcast, and be back next week for another really interesting guest to help us lead our lives enthusiastically and in a most healthy and positive manner. Until then, once again hope you'll, uh, if you haven't picked up your copy of Rejuvenating, The Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm, I hope that when you visit the Amazon website to get Tim's book, you'll also look at mine in one of its formats. And on that note, since we're still in the pandemic, I'm going to close out with encouraging you all to stay safe and look forward to seeing you next week.